brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, people. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And as we've sailed along through the vast conspiracy, we find that many accepted models for health and wellness, energy, economics, and even the structure of reality itself are incomplete, broken, or nefariously deceptive. Meanwhile, the true discoveries and more accurate models are hidden away, worked on in secret, and sometimes even weaponized before we've caught wind of them at all. Because God forbid we upset the apple cart or the mountains of cash made by big pharma, central banks, oil tycoons, and the rest of them. And so many fields feel stagnant as if there's no more room to grow without exposing one of the threads that leads to the kind of understandings we need. And as we dig deeper into the things kept behind the curtain, we often find that the advice and worldviews of our guests not only have a lot of synergy but are often simpler, more natural, and when it comes to health and wellness, a lot cheaper and more effective than Big Pharma's petro-pills-for-everything policy. Which, of course, brings me to the work of today's guest, Eileen Day McCusick, the founder of Biofield Tuning, a groundbreaking sound therapy modality, and the award-winning author of Tuning the Human Biofield, a book which was based on her master's thesis exploring the effects of audible sound on the human body and its biofield. Having spent over 20 years researching the electromagnetic field that surrounds the human body, she has meticulously mapped the biofield, revealing the influence of magnetic fields on our physical, mental, and emotional well-being. Eileen has trained over a thousand students in how to utilize biofield tuning in their own healing practices, and she recently began certifying practitioners to teach biofield tuning as well. Eileen is also the founder of the Biofield Tuning Institute, a nonprofit which is currently partnering with the Consciousness and Healing Initiative and the Institute of Noetic Sciences to apply the scientific method to the biofield anatomy hypothesis. The Biofield Tuning Institute is also spearheading the outreach program Tuners Without Borders, which seeks to bring biofield tuning to at-risk populations around the world. Another bright mind doing noble things, and it's a real treat to have her here. The fine-tuning biofield teacher, healer, and a real master of her domain, Eileen, welcome to the higher side. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
Yes, yes. Well, I am really psyched to have you here. The book is very professional and makes a great case for this new science of the biofield and the bigger model of reality that it's kind of nested within. So this should be a lot of fun. I hate to kick it off with cliche questions like how'd you get started in this, but you are a pioneer here and something like healing with tuning forks is probably pretty off the radar for a lot of people. But this was a topic of your master's thesis, and it's now your bread and butter. So what is this origin story? How did you discover and develop this? Well, you know, I think like many people who go into healing, we go looking for healing for ourselves. And that was certainly my journey was, you know, that I ended up as a really messed up American teenage girl. I became bulimic and neurotic and schizophrenic and depressed and you know, it was basically a basket case. And then I went on to start a restaurant at the age of 20 while I still had an eating disorder. And that made me even more neurotic. And then the restaurant was really successful. So I was working 100 hour weeks on my feet constantly. And then I turned into a real hot mess and had to bail and decided to go to massage therapy school because one of my biggest issues was that I had terrible chronic back pain and I also had TMJ, temporomandibular joint syndrome, and, I, and adrenal burnout and miserable digestion. I mean, I was just, I was really a very not in a healthy place at all, you know, at the tender age of 24. And so I, I went to massage therapy school. I kind of wanted to be a naturopath, but I hadn't gone to college right out of high school. You know, I, I don't know how many years you have to go to school to be a naturopath, but I didn't like school. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really want to put myself through that. I thought massage would be a good entry point. And it was, it was really helpful. It helped rehabilitate my back and, you know, get me in better shape. And I went back to the restaurant, but I wanted to stay committed to the fact that I wanted, you know, to be involved in health and wellness. And I really very much so wanted to figure out how to experience a very high degree of health myself, you know, on every level, physical, mental, emotional, relational, because I found, and I think, you know, like many people, I was just really struggling on every front, struggling to have a healthy relationship with food in my body, struggling to have a healthy relationship with, you know, my family, <laughs> struggling to have a healthy relationship with money. You know, I think that we're all kind of seated in some way with all of these dysfunctions <laughs> that our culture kind of feeds on. You know, I call them lobster pots. It's like we, we kind of get led into these lobster pots and then we get stuck there. And I was stuck in a whole bunch of lobster pots and really kind of determined to find my way out. Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, I was on a mission to get out of the lobster pots. So I was doing massage part time and reading. I was, you know, reading just a ton. I'm kind of a voracious reader. And I came across a bunch of stuff on the use of sound and color and music, you know, basically vibrational healing. And it seemed really logical to me, you know, if everything is ultimately vibration, you know, it's just traveling waves in space, then that's what we are too on a very fundamental level. You know, we're just pockets of sound and light. Mm -hmm. And so it made a lot of sense to me to treat sound with sound. But I actually got, you know, in, in the very beginning, when I started playing, I got a set of tuning forks. But then I got colored lights in every color of the rainbow, 100 watt bulbs. And I got a surround sound stereo with a subwoofer under the table. 
And I was treating people with sound and music and color. You know, it's pretty intense. You know, over time, I got all kind of whittled down to just the tuning forks. And I just used the tuning forks, you know, as a hobby for years. I, to be perfectly honest, I, I did not want to be classified as airy-fairy, woo-woo, paranormal, you know, <laughs> any of the things that people seem to have some kind of knee-jerk association when I told them that I was using tuning forks for healing. It was really, like, rejected in a really unkind way from so many people. And that, you know, that doesn't feel good to be on the receiving end of, you know, like I, I had a really popular restaurant. People say, what do you do? I'm like, oh, you know, I've got the vanilla bean. They'd be like, oh my God, I love that place. And I'd say Mm. something like that, you know, I do tuning forks for healing. And they'd be like, oh, you know, it was just, (laughs) it was weird on, you know, honestly, for so long that so many people had that response. Now, what's really cool is that, you know, I've been around to see this change. So it was 96 when I first started. And now, you know, in 2019, especially in the last year or two, sound is really blowing up, you know, and people are getting hip to the fact that it works. You know, it works to change people's state. And that's what kind of kept me going with it, you know, despite other people's opinions, was that I was observing that it was producing significant state changes for people. And, you know, that's what's important. I think everybody wants to figure out how to, you know, not suffer unnecessarily. And so what I was finding, especially when I started moving away from the body and actually out into the body's field, which, you know, was sort of accidental. Initially, for the first 10 years, I just worked on and over the body. But then when I sort of discovered that there were tonal and pressure disturbances that I could sense, you know, two, three, four, five, six feet away from the body. When I started working with these emissions, you know, in the greater biomagnetic field, then very dramatic therapeutic outcomes started happening. And, and a whole lot of questions came up, you know, cause it was all weird. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, you know, six feet away from you and I'm holding a tuning fork and it's vibrating violently you know, I'm holding it in midair. And it's just like, you know, and it's making this terrible shrieking sound. And if I just stay in this spot, reflecting that noise back to you, that noise changes and it settles and it becomes more harmonious. And then you discover all of a sudden that this sort of longstanding anxiety you've had has just gone away, you know, just gone away. <laughs> and that, you know, well, what the hell is going on there? Like what's happening? And that's what drove me to go to school as an adult. Finally, I went to college around in my 40s and write a master's thesis on it, which was kind of a hard thing to do because I discovered that there'd been like no research really done on audible sound. Like research had been done on infrasound and ultrasound, uh, on music, but really nothing on sound, which I thought was really interesting. And then I later discovered that the military had been doing all the research on sound. Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, not using it for good. But, and then I discovered the biofield, the term biofield, and that really opened up kind of a whole new frontier of understanding. And so, you know, so I really wanted to be able to understand and describe it from a scientific perspective you know, just because of the the image issue of it. And so that's what I really seek to do in tuning the human biofield. But as you discovered, I kind of had to reinvent our entire 
cosmological story <laughs> in order for it to make sense. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned the military side of the research. That happens in a lot of areas where it just seems like the only people who kind of have the monopoly on the research are kind of nefarious groups, or of course the military keeps us safe to a degree, but when they're developing crowd control frequency weapons or frequency guns that make you feel sick, I mean, oftentimes this is used on populations that are just trying to get a fair shake rather than some actual threat. I mean, threat to the system, I guess, is people protesting in the streets, but it is unfortunate because a lot of times, I mean, this also has been talked about with the MK Ultra stuff, just in the realm of the mind and studying it to its fullest degree, we often learn about all the negative aspects of this. How can you control a mind? How can you get people? And the positive aspects, the same, the positive applications of the same type of research just aren't even looked at because that's not their goal. And in terms of the general population, it's just unknown that they should even seek answers there. Yeah, I know. It seems unfortunate. You know, like I was reading this thing about how they developed riot gear shields that emit a frequency that suffocates people. Wow. And I was like, why don't they just emit something that makes people feel happy? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. They, so that they're not menacing or threatening, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, give everybody a nice mellow high. Why not? Yeah, why not, you know? Yeah. So mm. it is. It's unfortunate, but it's kind of the same principles. You know, all the these years that I've been studying how we can use sound to be uh, syntropic, to be healthy, to bring order to the body, the military has been figuring out how to make it entropic and, you know, bring disorder <laughs> to the body. But, you know, life is all about contrast, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. And when you start to learn about these kind of suppressed things, then you can kind of get past how bad it is and start to think, well, what are the positive applications? And that's kind of a beautiful place to be. And in the book, you say biofield tuning, also called sound balancing, is based on the biofield anatomy hypothesis, which is the premise that our biofield, which extends approximately five feet to both sides of the body and three feet above the head and below the feet, is shaped like a torus. And that it contains the record of our memories embedded as energy and information and standing waves within this structure. I mean, wow, that is more detailed than the general terms of something like an aura that we might hear. And that's what I liked about your book is it is full of details rather than kind of vague ideas. So what more can you tell us about the biofield itself? Well, I think you know, the sort of most fundamental definition of it is that it's our electric body. You know, and I think that there's a really big disconnection in our culture about the fact that we're electric. You know, it's it's an interesting point like that that's been surprisingly difficult for me to get across, especially when I was speaking with potential publishers for my second book, because my second book is on electric health. And they were like, well, you're known for your work with sound and this is about electricity. Like what, what's the difference? I'm like, my first book is called tuning the human biofield. <laughs> like the human biofield is electric. So, you know, there's just like, people just don't, they don't get it. I can say that it's your electromagnetic body, but we don't, we're not raised with any kind of context for understanding this because we're so indoctrinated into a chemical mechanical model. 
So even though people can agree to the bits and pieces of it, you know, like, well, you know, if you get an EKG, that's measuring the electrical output of your heart, right? So your heart is electric. You know, an EEG shows your electric brain waves and our bones are piezoelectric crystalline structures, you know, that make electricity when we compress them. Our blood carries a charge, our fascia, our collagen microfiber network, our fluids, like everything is electrified. We're walking batteries, you know, and we have the ability to get those little toys where you can hold each end of them and it, you know, lights up. And if you have a heart attack, you know, what do they do? They apply electricity to restart it. And so, you know, this idea that, that this is primary, that it's really our mind, you know, when you focus or when you feel, this is all like electromagnetic and acoustic too. You know, there's, there's really, it's just waves of energy in us that animate us. And when the electricity leaves our body, that's when we're dead. And it's the same electricity in the wall as it is in lightning or the sun, you know, which is a plasma. It's all one electricity, just like it's all one water, you know, and we're water and electricity for the most part. And we just don't, we don't look at ourselves in that way. You know, one of the things that people say is like, well, what's the energy in energy medicine? You know, it's like, it's electric. Like that's what it is. It's, I don't understand why, you know, this, the whole idea of the body being electric, anything that has an electric current going through it has a magnetic field around it. You know, that's just really basic natural law. And so, you know, of course the body has a magnetic field around it. And of course the body gives off vibes. Everybody feels vibes, you know, everybody feels magnetically attracted to people or repulsed. You know, we talk about chemistry between people, but so much of it is electromagnetism and, and mag the magnetism, you know, <laughs> that this is more primary than the chemistry. And so this work has really been a discovery of learning to look at the body and health, moving away from this chemical mechanical perspective that I've been indoctrinated into, and really seeing that if you take care of the body's electric health, if you take care of the biofield, the rhythms, the patterns, the flows, the synapses, the connections, the gaps, you know, the, the pockets of resistance, the noise in the signal of the electric body, it just makes health so much easier. You know, it, it's the activity in the electrical system that's giving rise to the, to the chemistry in the body. And so when you're treating the chemistry, you're only, you're treating the effect. In fact, when you're treating the body, you're treating the effect because what I really discovered is that it's the field that is causative. And it's, it's, you know, if you think about electric signaling, something that's cackling and that's, you know, sparking, <laughs> that that's not a healthy thing. And that's exactly what the level that we work at with sound, a vibrating tuning fork produces a weak electromagnetic field. So it becomes almost like a magnet. It acts so we can actually manipulate the magnetic field of the body you know, it's, it might be flowing in a way that's really off balance and the tuning fork can come and feel and sense. And everybody can, like when people learn this, they're so amazed. So it's like, you like, wow, there's a current running right here, you know, two feet off your hip. And it's stuck there from some accident that you had, you know, years ago. And you can actually hook into that and you can move that magnetic fields guide electric current. So as you shift the magnetic field, you change the way that electricity is running through the body. When you think about something like pain as too much 
voltage or current running through a wire, we can actually redirect that flow of electricity away from that area and into a more neutral expression. We can also mm. change the rhythms of things in the body. The tuning fork acts like a metronome that helps the body to become self-aware. Basically in this work, you just sort of move in from like six feet away from the body, really slowly towards the body with a vibrating fork. And you're listening and feeling for, for resistance and for noise in the signal. When you get to one of those places, you just stay there and you reflect that back to the body. Then the body will change its rhythms, it will change its, its tension, it will relax itself in order so that it gets the feedback of a clear tone. So the body is, you know, a self-tuning instrument. It's like these tuning forks to tune, you know, musical instruments. They also happen to tune human instruments, which is, you know, a super easy solution to, you know, what medicine tends to treat as a more complex problem by treating the effect in the body. Instead of the rhythms, patterns, flows, the underlying blueprint that is the biofield. Wow. Yes. Great summary. I mean, clearly we are not getting fundamental enough when it comes to medicine. And you're right. We've been kept in ignorance. We've been taught a mechanical model that is just not compatible with this sort of stuff. So instead of reworking our model, we just tend to dismiss this type of stuff as alternative medicine, as basically that's the term they use to say fake medicine. And Really, there is a worldview, a way to look at the world that is much more compatible with this, and it actually kind of explains how it can work. I mean, you write in the book that this work has brought you to an entirely different cosmology or big picture about the nature of life, and that is often the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, where you can see why certain subjects are, say, suppressed or hidden or just not taught. And the way that our conventional model is flipped from what seems to be the truth, it can be quite powerful. And what sort of model of the universe did this open up to you? I mean, we talked a little bit about it. You know, there, there's some of the details in the answer you just gave, but open it up for us into kind of the bigger model, the bigger cosmology that this technology kind of folds into. Well, one of the questions I had was that I observed as I was moving a fork through a person's field that I would hit what I, like these sticky areas that felt like I was encountering mass or charge or even stuff. It appeared that, you know, that it had mass of some kind. And then the, the tuning fork could actually move that mass and change its position within the field. You know, I would move it from being like stuck or frozen in the field and discover that it was related to some very particular memory or trauma, and then just bring it back into circulation in the body's electrical system. But I was like, well, what is this stuff I'm moving, right? Like, what is it? And it was really hard to find anybody to talk to about it who could give me any kind of insight into what I was encountering. You know, I didn't want to call it chi or prana. Like, that's not my language. You know, that, that, that doesn't answer the question of what it is. Right. And I was like, and what law of physics is, like, governing the fact that a tuning fork can actually move this stuff? Like, it was just so strange. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I went down a rabbit hole and really just kept on doing a bunch of research. But it actually, the answer kind of came from an unexpected place. And that was in December of 2009. My son came to the dinner table one night and he was like, 
did you know that there's a fourth state of matter called plasma? And I was like, hmm, solid, liquid, gas. I was like, no, somehow I missed an entire state of matter. <laughs> and so, and then we were talking afterwards about space being a vacuum. And, you know, my husband was like, well, of course, space is an empty vacuum. Right? This is what we all think. We all have this image in our head that space is just this vast nothingness, you know, this big empty thing, the emptiest of the empties. And, and I was like, no, you know what? I read somewhere actually that space actually has something in it. <laughs> yeah. So I went after dinner and I searched on the Internet, space is not a vacuum. And what came up was plasma, of all things. And that was really intriguing to me. And actually, I ended up spending the next like four or five months reading everything I could find about plasma. And I even turned it into an independent study for my master's degree and ended up informing my thesis and then my book was discovering that there, there was this whole philosophy out there called electric universe theory that basically said that electricity, not gravity, is the dominant force in space. And that rather than like a thermonuclear reactor burning itself out, in isolation, our sun was powered by intergalactic, you know, ropes of electricity called Birkeland currents. And that actually all this phenomena in space that NASA had been calling hot gas, like nebulas that are all aglow, you know, that's like hot gas. That's actually plasma. And, you know, plasma is basically just the flow of electricity. It's free on, it's, you know, a 1912 dictionary definition of it was elementary matter. You know, it's, the fire of life. It's life itself, really plasma and electricity. And, you know, it's intensified light and movement and that everything ultimately, you know, starts, I came to see there's a whole other state of matter as well. You know, ether that got opened up to me. So mm -hmm. we, you know, we can talk about that too, but you know, but the, the basic cosmology is, is that it's not a vacuum. It's a luminiferous ocean of clear light. It's a fundamentally a kind of liquid that light waves do travel through. You know, we've been told that that electromagnetic radiation doesn't need a medium to propagate through and that light can propagate through a vacuum, but that that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like it is that's that removal of the ether, which is a connective medium from our cosmological story. You know, and this was sort of taken out at the same time we tried to take out Tesla and, you know, things that were not taught about. The ether was removed from our cosmology, this idea of the unified field that spins itself through torsion into plasma, which then spins itself into gases and liquids and solids, but that ultimately it's all one unified fluid field of light that waves are just traveling through. And so, you know, that, that was a huge, a huge revelation to recognize that there are these two additional states of matter that are actually connective because, you know, we're, we're, we're all been put in this world of isolation and separation. That's cold. That's random. That's meaningless. You know, that nobody can hear you cry because sound doesn't travel through space, hmm. you know, and there's dark holes that gobble up light and there's, mysterious dark energy and dark matter and it's all really freaking dark and disconnected and sad and anxiety provoking and i realized that a big part of my issues my health and well-being issues were actually tied subconsciously to the belief in big bang cosmology 
And the, you know, the stories that we've been told about the, the very fundamental nature of life, our cosmology is one of darkness and separation. And what I discovered and uncovered going down the plasma rabbit hole is that it's simply, that's simply an inaccurate representation. And what the EU people are saying, and now even more mainstream cosmology is coming out and saying is that, hey, it's, you know, space is an electrically charged medium. It's full of plasma. <laughs> and the same electricity that lights up the sun also lights up my cells. And it's all one electricity. It's all one light. And so that brought about this sort of like inner unification of, you know, my scientific self, which didn't have a biological or cosmological connection to the idea that all is one, <laughs> because our cosmological story is not that. Whereas the spiritual story, you know, sees everything as one, but also recognizes inner illumination. And our inner illumination is biological. It isn't just some spiritual thing. If anybody has the experience of sort of seeing their inner light, having a moment of revelation of the nature of the, the liquid light that is in their body, they don't have any kind of scientific framework to hang that on. And so, you know, your only choice is like, well, like I've seen the light, you know, <laughs> I need to go to religion instead of, instead of just becoming aware that we, this is how your body communicates. It's all light signaling. It's all, you know, light speed all one thing and completely connected to everything that we're in and that's around us. So, you know, that's what I ended up going into in the book. And yeah, like you said, you look at the cover, you see teeny forks and chakras, like you don't necessarily know that you're going to be led into a completely different cosmological perspective. <laughs> that's so true. And it is very strange that the oldest, most ancient material we can kind of get into tends to have a subtext that is speaking to something of a truer model than what we are teaching kids today. And we think we're so advanced in the Western world. But yes, this cold, dead universe model, it can affect us profoundly. And it was the electric universe that I was so excited to see in your book. You actually write that it's the most profound concept you've come across in your life of research. And I agree. We've done shows with both Walt Thornhill and David Talbot, both fascinating guys. The wildest part of their model seems to be that Saturn could have at one point been our sun or that it is more of a star than it is a planet. But if you think of everything as plasma or plasma in different states, I guess it's possible. I mean, New ways of looking at things can support things that an old model would say are impossible, I guess. Right. I mean, our old model says distance healing is impossible. All right. And that happens. And it happens. You know, it happens. It happens very consistently in a lot of different approaches, you know. I mean, it, it, the, it isn't about evidence. It's about dogma. And it's about the need, you know, for the keepers of the world of solid, liquid, and gas, you know, <laughs> to keep it that way. But I think there's just so much information coming out now. Now, I'm in a summit. I was just interviewed for a summit on electric health. And these, you know, they cobbled together a whole bunch of people who are speaking this language and, and made a summit, you know. So it's definitely, I think it's just changing. I think it's part of the whole age of Aquarius thing. You know, if you look at the symbol for Aquarius, it looks a lot like electric current moving or lightning. Hmm. <laughs> I like it. 
And you mentioned the ether, and ether physics is something I love having guests talk about because it is still somewhat fuzzy to me because that old model is so hard to completely shake off. But in the book, you kind of talk about ether giving rise to plasma. And the other big buzzword we hear is consciousness. I'm interested how you fold those three concepts in together. If ether gives rise to plasma, where does consciousness emerge? In the same etheric soup? Yeah, I mean, it would have to, you know, because because the fine precipitates down into the dense. And so, you know, the fact that our current, you know, there's so many things that our standard model asserts that are just so illogical, like this idea that consciousness arises from brain activity. Like, when did a thought, you know, when did a thing ever precede the thought of a thing? <laughs> exactly. Like, never. <laughs> you know? So, so, you know, I, I really figured out a long time ago, actually, that they're not trying to be logical. They're just trying to keep us all separate. Because mm -hmm. here's the thing is that when you really grasp the ether and like the work that I'm doing, healing work with people, with groups, hundreds of people, and, you know, working, working in groups to affect change on an individual level for people, when we connect through the ether, it's very tangible. It's very real. It's very powerful. Like things you know, we can meet up in the ether and affect change. So I think, you know, that it isn't, it has nothing to do with what is, it's just very intentionally kept from people. Indeed. And even something like remote viewing research, you see time and time again that it works. And it's like, well, clearly we need to adjust the model because how is someone seeing a facility on the other side of the planet with their mind while you're watching them sit in this room and they're describing accurate things, making sketches that are accurate representations of the room they're trying to view. And it's like, well, we just dismiss that. And it's like, no, you need to fold that in because it clearly worked. So reverse engineer your model. And it's just so funny because people are going to see the title of this show, maybe see the cover of the book and think tuning forks. And it's like, well, even to get to explain tuning forks, you've got to explain the universe, basically. <laughs> you got to re-explain everything. And it is crazy. But just that basic idea that things filter down from the etheric rather than everything is just the brain, the Big Bang, this materialist stuff. This is how we explain it because it's a crucial point to understanding why biofield tuning can work. You make adjustments to the ethereal or the energy body, and then the changes filter down into your physical body. I mean, that's the 101. That's the nuts and bolts of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, what we shift in the fine precipitates into the gross. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating because I'm starting to accept this kind of stuff, but maybe even five or six years ago, I would just think there's no way given the complexity of the human body and the way they say they're working on all these cures that really never show up. It's like, well, if these guys are tinkering away with millions and billions of dollars in the lab, how can something like a tuning fork actually do some kind of healing? But we should talk about maybe the strengths and weaknesses of this modality. You write in the book that your two decades of clinical practice shows the process to be useful for a whole bunch of things. PTSD, anxiety, depression, pain, 
digestive disorders, vertigo, migraines, and emotional discord. Can you elaborate on some of these things it's good for and maybe some of the things that it's not? Yeah. Well, some of the things that we've observed that it's good for, you know, it kind of involves reframing the way that we've been taught to look at things, right? So, for example, people who have bipolar, you know, they're like, oh, well, you've got this chemical imbalance that you're a victim of your chemistry. But what I find, you know, is that I look at things tonally and rhythmically in the way that the body is expressing itself electrically. And so what I found listening to the bodies of people who have, quote, bipolar, is that their system is expressing very high, fast, thin frequencies, and then expressing very low, heavy, you know, and they're just kind of bouncing back and forth between these two expressions. So they're basically very out of tune, and they're missing their whole mid-tonal range. And the reason, you know, is probably because mom was anxious, you know, and dad was depressed. And then you get, you inherit that energetic, which is like the music of our DNA, the tonal expression. You know, you think everybody is tonal, right? You've been around somebody who's, who's a wet blanket and they're like, wah, 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 you know, yeah. like everybody's making sound. And so, you know, if you're around and those sounds are internal, they're, you know, they're, that's what they're feeling. Their, their inner orchestra is flat or sour or bitter or sharp. And you can hear this with the tuning forks. You know, when you, when you bounce a tuning fork, it's just a simple tone generator. You know, people get caught up in the fork. Well, it's not about a tuning fork and how new agey that seems. It's just an acoustic frequency generator. That's all it is. It's just making a sound, you know, <laughs> like, you know, we, we, everybody accepts that music can move you and that music can shift your state. So what we found is that using just one single tone has that same capability and it can be used almost like a scalpel in a way. It can be used very precisely interfacing with the nervous system, with the electrical system to find very precise areas where, you know, depression has an undertone. It sounds like, and if you just find that spot in the field where that tone is running, and you reflect it back to the body, the body doesn't want to be out of tune. And the body has the capacity to retune itself. And so given that input of hearing itself, it's kind of like looking in the mirror and realizing you have spinach in your teeth. You know, like you wouldn't know if the mirror wasn't there. And of course, you're going to correct it. So it's the same thing. When you reflect these atonal aspects back to the body, the body works with that input, the steady, coherent rhythm of the fork, and it tunes itself. And so you know, with any, any kind of disorder, if you're going to call it bipolar or anxiety or depression or any of these things, they're just rhythmic and tonal expressions in the body system that the body given the choice to adjust itself into its tonal sweet spot will take that opportunity because that's where the body wants to hang out. It knows the body knows its sweet spot and, and that's where it wants to be, you know? And so you know, all these cures and this and that, the body is the cure. The body is designed to cure itself. You just need to get what's getting in its way out of the way. And, you know, that on a very basic level, it's noise and resistance that also creates like an inhibition of breath. Man, it is deep stuff. And it's so fascinating. And, you know, something I was thinking about is that 
with dementia or Alzheimer's, it seems like even though a lot of times these people can't remember their own kids' names, you put headphones on them and play music from when they were a kid and they can remember every note, they can remember every lyric, and that's just interesting. It's another clue that there is something to this sound thing. I mean, you said at the beginning that the biofield is very heavily associated with our memory. And clearly here we have dementia patients that can remember things when the right sound is given to them. It's, it's just weird, but clearly there's a relationship. Well, and part of that is, is that, you know, I have a theory about Alzheimer's and, and biofield tuning and uh, this idea that our memories are actually in our field. Now, now, all our cell membranes, we have these structures called microtubules that are like little antenna that they're, you know, figuring out play, that play a role in consciousness somehow. What I see them as as little antennas that are receiving and transmitting information from the body to the field and, you know, back and forth. And so in what they've observed in Alzheimer's patients is that they are experiencing microtubule failure. And so if that is the apparatus that retrieves the memory from the field, then that, you know, it makes sense in that context. But I think that when we sing and we dance, we, we use all of our field and all of our brain. Whereas when we speak, it's limited to just one center. So if you have localized damage in certain microtubules related to accessing certain memories, that's going to be bypassed with music because there's, because it's in, it's in all of you, <laughs> you know, and the microtubules that are functioning are going to retrieve that information, you know, from the whole system, if that makes sense. It does. It does. I think that's really interesting about the Alzheimer's theory. It just seems like our connection between the field body and the physical body is weak. And I guess if we can identify a problem like that, we can then work to solve it in the right way. And I guess I would just ask for the rest of us, how can we even really sense our biofield, or at least how can we know if ours is out of whack? I mean, are there signs that would indicate that we need a tune-up? Well, I mean, I, you know, pretty much everybody needs a tune-up. Yeah, but you asked me, you know, what it works for and what it doesn't work for. We find that it works well for, like, mild to moderate most things. We don't treat people who are severely ill, where disease has gone deeply into the body. We don't treat cancer we don't treat pregnant women because we don't know how it will affect them and we don't feel it's appropriate to experiment to find out. We don't treat, you know, any end of life care, nothing like that. When the body starts to shut down, it's just not our domain anymore. And so, you know, it's more of a wellness thing. If you keep your field healthy and fluid and flowing and you keep your battery high, you know, it really, this is one of the core tenets of this concept of electric health is that there's so many people out there, you know, who have things like Epstein-Barr, Lyme, lupus, you know, all these autoimmune things, high fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. And, you know, if you look at it from an electric health perspective, what's happening is that these people have let their batteries get too low. And the reason why they've let their batteries get too low is because they've spent more time discharging then they have recharging because they've spent more time saying yes when they mean no, accommodating, saying what other people want to say, holding back their own truth, suppressing their own emotions, you know, kind of shuffling through life that other people are telling them what to do. And they're not free. They're not free. 
And they're not free and they don't feel free or worthy to take care of themselves to keep their own battery meter high. Because if, if you're running your battery meter at 50%, if you have an, a company and you have a hundred employees and only 50 show up, you know, is everything getting done? No, no. Right. I mean, what's, what's getting done is the bare minimum and things start to fall apart. And so that's, what's happening in disease is that not everybody's showing up for work. And so, you know, there just isn't enough power. There's enough energy in the system to get everything done in its working order. But when you start really being like recognizing when you need to say no and be like, you know what? No, I need a nap or, you know, and really start policing your recharging, your ability to follow your own Oz and avoid going through things that feel, ugh. you know, this is a really kind of simple way you know, if you are waking up in the morning and you got to go to work and you don't want to, and that's a big, you know, you're going through your whole day. That's driving your battery down. But if you wake up and you're like, wow, today I get to go do this. Uh, You know, and you get to ride the updrafts of your life. You get to, you know, really start to police your need for rest and recharge and honoring your truth. Your battery meter starts to go up. The morale in your company starts to go up and people start wanting to come into work. And so all of a sudden now everybody's showing up and wow, I don't have chronic fatigue anymore. Yeah, man. And I just think the amount of work you've done and understanding the biofield is so interesting. You talk about how the memories that we have, they kind of, they're kind of structured like the rings on a tree where the older memories are kind of at the edges. And that's just so interesting. But You also write that just as the brain is compartmentalized with different areas responsible for different functions, so is the biofield. So it is more than just an aura of concentric rings that stores our memory, right? I mean, what are some of these other parts and functions of the biofield that might be even less obvious? Yeah. So, you know, this has been a really fascinating journey mapping the biofield because For me, you know, it's sort of like what I imagine like learning Braille must be like, you know, this sort of like not having a clue in the beginning what anything is and then starting to have recognizing patterns and then sort of figuring out a bigger picture, you know, through exposure. And that's really what happened to me, you know, as I'm just sort of curiously walking around the body and bouncing sound off and listening to the pingback. And I had the fortune of that particular stage of my research. We lived in the middle of nowhere in the mountains of Vermont, in the middle of a 25 acre meadow, there's like nothing around, no flight paths, you know, just such deep quiet. And I was able to listen very, very deeply to the sound. And I started to recognize patterns. Now I started to observe that different emotions sounded different ways and that they were very distinctive, that different pathologies like arthritis. Well, that sounds grainy. You know, I think you have arthritis in this hip. Oh yeah. I just got an x-ray. I have arthritis in that hip, you know, and I can tell by the way that it sounds that, you know, pretty much any pathology where you have a system in the body that is not working properly is going to make noise just like your car. And so, you know, this is the way that dolphins can kind of bounce sound off things. And, you know, they can always pick out the pregnant lady in a group with the way that her pingback sounds. And so, you know, it was kind of like that. It was like the sort of echolocation and, and observing these different structures and patterns and tendencies in the rhythms and patterns of flows of 
the, you know, the, the biomagnetic fluid, the bioplasma that surrounds the body. And so, you know, I discovered certain really interesting features like at the solar plexus on either side, about 10 inches off either side, there are these fixed points that are about the size of hockey pucks that I can't, there are loud spots and places that have charge and mass, but I can't move them like I could move other loud spots. They're like, they don't move. And when I stick a fork in them and when I, you know, what I found when I listened deeply is that the one on a person's right side holds all this information about their father. And I can stick a fork in that zone and I can listen and I can tell you all about the personality of your dad. And I can tell you about the history of his ancestors and all kinds of stuff. Cause wow. there's a whole language here that over 23 years I've just decoded. Wow. I'm not the only one. I mean, people who are in this work, you know, everybody learns it. You know, I just got a session yesterday from somebody who's been practicing three years and she absolutely, you know, can people learn this language? It doesn't happen at first, you know, just like anything. You're not going to learn Braille right away. You know, you got to take some time to kind of feel your way through it. But then you start to recognize the words, the tones, where, where they show up in the field. And you start to learn the language of vibration because we know it because this is what our own bodies are speaking. It's a universal language. It's not just humans. It's also plants and animal flora and fauna speak the same vibrational language. Yes. And that's yes. the forks reveal. It's really wild. It is. And I am a big fan of trying to explore plant consciousness more and their the hidden language of plants. And you mentioned dolphins. Of course, dolphins are almost the only animal that we think, hey, maybe they are as smart as us, but clearly they're operating kind of more in tune with the universal language of frequency. I mean, that's how they get around, as you mentioned, identifying pregnant ladies. It is probably a language that is more informative on a fundamental level and more and, and far less clunky than speaking with the mouth. Even just that, I mean, the English language, when compared to indigenous languages like the Hopi, as you talk about in the book, even it's clunky. They're using the same mouth, but they just have a different way of speaking. They've constructed their language differently, and it is more in tune with the frequency model of the universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it absolutely is. I mean, that's the thing that's really been so touching for me in this work is that because what I'm really doing when I drop a fork, you know, at the edge of the field and I start to work my way in, it's like dropping a needle on an album and listening to the tonal soundtrack of someone's life. And, you know, I've hit places that, you know, where, where it sounds like keening or wailing, you know, just that the tone is so cute. And so since we could say I was sad then, you know, but this is like, I can feel the nuances. There's so many different ways we can be sad. You know, there's melancholy, there's loneliness, there's abandonment, there's deep grief, you know, <laughs> there's so many nuances to the expression of all of our own emotions that the language of the forks reveals. And you don't need words. You know, I can be right in something where, you know, somebody her husband went out for a bike ride and died on the side of the road and she, you know, missed the call and missed him his last moments. And I'm in that place in her record and just feeling right along with her 
you know, the depth of that emotion that can never be conveyed with words. But when we listen to someone's field, we can we can hear that we can become and we can witness that. And there's something about somebody standing with you just witnessing uh, deep pain or deep trauma where no words need to be said that in and of itself is so healing. You know, we all want to be seen and heard. And, and you know, the, this universal language that is nonverbal it gives you the opportunity to be seen and heard and to see and to hear, you know, which is a, which is a real honor and a privilege to, to, you know, to get inside somebody's mind, really their mind and their memory and help relieve these very difficult places because they're all held in a particular tension. And so when the fork comes in, it initially resonates with whatever that, you know, that distortion, that strong emotion, that strong experience is we witness it. But then it entrains the body into a more relaxed, coherent expression. So it takes the tension out of the field, the tension out of the body, which then, you know, frees up that energy and allows it to go back into circulation. Hmm. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. I am a little curious about this aspect that certain places in the biofield hold specific memories like the memories of our father and his ancestors, that example you gave. I mean, that seems tough. Are you asking people about these rough spots in the field? How do we get from, oh, there's something weird here in your biofield to this is dad stuff? Well, I've mapped it. I mean, when people learn biofield tuning, it comes with a map. (laughs) And so, you know, we just invite students to plot things on the map. So, you know, if you're working on somebody who's 60, and you start, you know, five and a half feet away from them, you mark on the floor, the halfway mark. And so when, you know, you're going along and all of a sudden you hit turbulence at the halfway mark, you know, in the sadness zone, you're like, okay, I'm in an area that might be around the age of 30 and may relate to the emotion of sadness. It's very turbulent and stuck here. Does that make you think of anything? Does that mean anything to you? And sometimes people are like, no, instantly what it is. You know, and they can talk about it if they want They're, You know, they can share their story if they want. We don't, you know, give advice or anything. We just witness with them, experience it with them. And then it resolves and then you kind of move on. Or people don't want to talk about it. They don't have to. But there's still that conversation going on between the fork and their field. You know, so there are and there are different constructs of imbalance that I found. For example, there's these things on either side of the head, about 10 inches off the right and left side of the head that I call the hamster wheels. And that's when we're in a tendency, if we tend to think about the future a lot, we will run a tremendous amount of energy kind of in a hamster wheel kind of way, 10 inches off the right side of the head. And I can get in there, I can feel it, I can feel the velocity, <laughs> I can feel the tone and temperament of the, the hamster. You know, I remember working on somebody and I'd be like, wow, your hamster is going like Mach 10. Like I'd never encountered, (laughs) you know, such a zippy hamster before. But what was happening was that because this person was overworking their brain with all this worry, they were depleting their kidneys and their their like their whole kind of kidney adrenal complex was was sort of whirring up in their head (laughs) through this tendency to to overthink about the future. And that's a very tangible pattern. And you can actually stick a fork in there. You can slow down the hamster and you can take the, the energy that's sort of outside the now, you know, thinking about the future and bring it to the center and bring people into now. Now this is to me is the whole aim of healing is can I show up 
right here, right now, with the full totality of myself, paying complete attention to whoever or whatever I'm with in a relaxed, contented, grateful state with nowhere to go and nothing to do and nothing to fix and no ax to grind, and no ants in my pants and no, you know, kerfluffle and drama fuzzing all around me. <laughs> Can I just be in and be groovy? And that's all I think most people want, you know, <laughs> is. And so the way that we get groovy is to be in tune. That makes sense. It is kind of crazy about life that the hardest thing to do is nothing. That's right. It's true. very hard to do nothing. <laughs> it's telling too. And I guess I was going to ask you when it comes to this work and the effects that it has on people, have you seen people come out with a better ability to meditate or a stronger ability to meditate or even something like manifestation and the law of attraction, which are intimately tied, I think, to meditation and your ability to control your thoughts? Does this have a kind of effect on those realms of mental faculties? Yeah, absolutely. Because your biofield is your mind. And so, you know, if you've got an undisciplined mind, we're going to find that in, in the field, you know, and most people do have undisciplined minds. I mean, this has really been my observation is that emotional discomfort that we don't address drives the monkey mind. So what, what people think that they're, they're not controlling their thoughts, what's really going on is they have ants in their pants because they have because feelings buried alive never die. And when the emotional body is still, then the mental body can be still. <laughs> I love it. I love the way you break it down because if you just drop a lot of these concepts in someone's lap, they don't understand, you know, they can't get from A to B to C to D, but it all makes a lot of sense in the context of the electric universe model and everything filtering down. But very cool. This has been a lot of fun. I think you are doing really great and interesting work. You also mentioned Tuners Without Borders. That's a whole nother thing that is just really inspiring, and it's awesome to see you doing that. I'm definitely tempted to find a biofield tuner here in San Diego and give it a shot. Is there anything else to tell people about before we go? Social media stuff, new projects, your website? Sure. Well, you can visit my website, which is biofieldtuning.com. You know, there's different things there. There's obviously tuning forks. We sell tuning forks. You can take a class. You can sign up for a class. You can receive an audio healing session with me. I don't see one-on-one -on -one clients anymore. I work in groups and I, I have both recordings and live events that people attend. And, you know, people are like, well, how can me listening to you tune, you know, waving a tuning fork over an empty table two years ago, like do anything for me. And I would say, you know, have you ever listened to a piece of music that was recorded years ago and been moved by it? You know, we are, we are moved by sound and it doesn't matter if we weren't there when it was live. Plus when I work on, when I do those, those sessions, I work on everyone listening live and anyone who will ever listen to the recording has their energetic template present in my group hologram. So people find those things, you know, helpful. I think they're a little weird, you know, probably nothing I would ever sign up for, but, uh, <laughs> but they were born of necessity because my one-on-one -on -one practice became so busy. I couldn't manage it because mm -hmm. it works. And I think, you know, just like lots of other sound things out there, it really gives people that state shift that they're looking for, you know, most of the time. Well, that's really interesting. Cause I was kind of curious as you were talking about that, is there a, 
a degradation in effectiveness by going through a digital channel. I mean, even with something like a record, people say the quality is way more robust. I would wonder if there'd be any kind of a lessening effect by putting it through that digital channel, but it seems like it still works to some degree. Well, it's a yes and no. I mean, no, because what's really happening is that I am making this adjustment in the ether on your extended self. And it doesn't matter how the sound comes through or not, because what it is, is it's an energy adjustment that's taking place. So what you're doing is you're connecting to an event that your infinite self was present at, and you're downloading that file and sort of connecting to that action in the ether. It's not about the sound that you're, the quality of the sound that you're listening to. Does that make sense? It's not the easiest thing for people to wrap their head around. You know, I can do a session on you. We could get off, hang up, and I could start working on you. And we wouldn't have any way of hearing in between. And yet you would be able to feel what I'm doing. So it's not about your ears hearing the sound. That's not what's doing the adjustment. It's me working on your template through the ether that is creating the adjustment. Mm. Right on, right on. Well, like we said, the universe provides a lot of useful tools and non-locality is certainly one of them. Well, it's one of the rules of ether physics. You know, it's, it's, it's just a natural law and it's just not one that we recognize, but it definitely, it's consistent. It produces extremely consistent outcomes. Therefore, you know, it's a property of the ether. It's just how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Well said. (laughs) So one more time, of course, the book is tuning the human biofield. It's a pretty complete exploration of this science and how to use it. And thanks a lot for taking the time. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Make a little birdhouse in your soul, people. Here we are at the end of the line. Great job for Mylene breaking down so many interesting things with a real convincing clarity. This is another episode that I've been really looking forward to releasing. And to be honest, I wasn't even too sure about it at first. Biofield tuning. I mean, on the surface... I'm on the fence. And I actually wanted to book a session before releasing this just so I could talk about it and its effectiveness or my experience in this wrap-up, but I just haven't been able to do so. But anyway, it might sound a bit silly at first. I would understand that. But when it's properly nested in the larger reality model, it does start to make sense. So often it feels like we're learning that the environment is full of abundance and simple tools that can work real wonders, and it's only the perception control that would lead a person to believe that this really is just a harsh, scarce world of death and decay. I mean, yeah, there is that. It's on the spectrum. But all the artificial systems of the world have been engineered to highlight and elevate the worst aspects of nature and human nature. Like a grand piano with all the keys removed but the dark and ominous one, so all you can really do is tickle the devil's tritone, if you know what I mean. But the electric universe model is a really important layer to the model of reality that I adhere to. And it just doesn't get a lot of airtime because it's not a thing that I find a lot of potential guests incorporating. 
So it's a real treat when I come across someone who can talk about it as well as Eileen did. I actually just got back from a flight to St. Louis to be in my buddy's wedding. Big congrats to Mark and Megan. But on a flight, you look out the window, and from the sky, every mountain range, every canyon, every river, they do have a general look of a lightning-esque pattern, a waveform type of distribution. And you can see, if you ask me, the electrical nature of it. People who talk about this typically cite the static discharge scarring on Mars, and I'm just thinking if you take the water out of the rivers, Earth would look a lot like that. So big thanks to Eileen for helping us dust off that old Electric Universe model and getting it some time center stage in the higher side spotlight. I think it's just what the doctor ordered. And like all episodes, there is a second hour for Plus members, and we definitely took it up a few notches and got a bit beyond her book and the Electric Universe and really went down that rabbit hole of humans being engineered with energetic limiters on us and just all the provocative stuff I love. Of course, I definitely knew that we'd get into the Electric Universe today, And I very consciously brought that up early so that the first hour would include that material because the first hour has so, so many more listeners. But I did not know that we'd get into Michael Tellinger and Sol Luckman. And to me, that just takes this show from good to great. But some other things we talked about in that second hour, how biofield tuning helps with manifestation building the bridge between the conventional paradigm and the path we need to advance the concept of the biofield, the relationship between frequency and emerging life forms and what black budget projects could be doing with that, beings that feed on negative energy, blockages in our system that might have been physically engineered, as I said, the idea that maybe we were a slave species engineered to pursue gold, and the very provocative sound-healing time-warp phenomenon. So it gets weird, (laughs) if it wasn't already. And of course, a Plus subscription is $8 a month for ad-free, action-packed, two-hour episodes, five a month, doing the best I can with each one, and offering up an archive of several amazing years. I'm thinking right now, Walt Thornhill and David Talbot are pretty good episodes to follow up with if you want a little more. So help me help you and go to thehiresidechats.com to sign up. In Higher Side News, the joint session this month is going to be on the 25th again at 7 p.m. Pacific. I know that I'm still working on that newer, better, faster, stronger joint session archive page for all the plus people. But to be honest, I've been recording just a crazy amount of shows in the last 30 days because, as I said, I was just in St. Louis for a wedding, and in a couple weeks, I'm flying to Florida for another wedding. In fact, any hardcore THC fans who have gone back and listened to what I sometimes refer to as the first real episode of the Higher Side Chats with Michael Tassarian, Those people might remember that I had a co-host on that episode, a guy named Dave. Well, I married Dave's sister, and now her and I are flying to Florida for his wedding. So, another higher side congratulations, this time to Dave, the OG co-host of THC. 
<laughs> so it's just another really busy month. And now I have a few days to start catching up again, getting that bonus stuff rearranged, and rolling out the next few shows in which Plasma makes a very exciting return appearance. And I can't wait to hear what you think of them, because I'm confident you will say good things. And I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. As always, couldn't do it without you. Eileen Day McCusick for all your biofield tuning needs. I've done my part. Your move, biofield suppressors, false paradigm pushers, and sorcerers of the scientific quarantine. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything the nine to five is trying to steal ya now don't that job seem silly hello can you hear me or should i play back recordings from some spike agency wish we were younger and free i'll be thankful when it's Exposed the vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn time.